I want to prepare us for the word that I'm about to preach to you by inviting you to a moment of nostalgia. And I might say you get to raise your hand at what point you are taken back to your childhood, even though even you, those at home. So uh, raise your hand as soon as you remember this song. One of these things is not like the others. One of these things doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the other? By the time I finish this song. Apparently the Stashenkos had a very guarded childhood. I don't think they ever raised their hand at any point. That might account for many things right there. We'll... Yes, we're all taking it back to that point in which Sesame Street did a great job of, of preparing us a little bit more for life. There's a, there's a thing that we all have to do to grow. There is a, a skill, there's an aptitude that we all learn that we're taught of from the earliest moment that is essential to what they would say is our cognitive development. We've got to be able to group things according to kinds and categories. We've got to be able to compare and contrast things. And, and that little 45-second ditty that Sesame Street would repeat over and over again, that was for our good. That was not just to fill time. It was to prepare our brains for the rest of life because we have to compare. We have to contrast. But you know what? Like everything else in this world, uh, there are perfectly good things that if left to themselves will take us into a ditch that there are dangers associated with just the art of learning comparison, that if you leave it to itself, if you give no guidance for what it means to compare, it is, it is not unlike an autoimmune disease where there is something that is very natural to you that ends up conspiring against you. And that thing is comparison. And the reason I take that tack on something that seems so natural that you might feel to be rather harmless is something I remember reading several years ago from none other than Donald Miller. He said this in one of his earlier books. He said this, Humans as a species are constantly and in every way comparing themselves to one another, which given the brief nature of their existence seems an oddity, and for that matter, a waste. Nevertheless, this is the driving influence behind every human social development, their emotional health and sense of joy, and sadly, their greatest tragedies. It is as though something that helped them function and live well has gone missing, and they are pining for that missing thing in all sorts of odd methods, none of which are working. The greater tragedy is that very few people understand they have the disease. This seems strange as well because it's obvious. To be sure, it's killing them, and yet sustaining their social and economic systems. They are an entirely beautiful people with a terrible problem. We all compare. You've been comparing today. I've been comparing today. We compare the entirety of our life, but there are dangers associated with it, and there are important ways to think of comparison in this way. There's a lot of ways in which we might fall into the ditch of comparison that is entirely at odds with following Jesus, and precisely because they are at odds with what it means to love. We started last week a new series listening to what Paul has to say about love. Why? 
Because as I said last week, it's perhaps, there's perhaps rarely been a day that we can ever remember when something so central to us has ever been so threatened by our circumstances. And so we need to recover a sense of what it means to love. And what we're arguing today is that love, when you think about it, is actually beyond compare. You leave the dangers of comparison behind you when you understand where love comes from and what it is, its nature and its centrality. So what we're going to do in listening to just a few words from 1 Corinthians 13 is to identify three truths. One, what are the dangers of comparison? Two, why are they dangers? And three, most importantly, how do we elude or escape them? What are the dangers? Why are they dangers? How do we elude or escape them? I get to ask you to stand to listen to the reading that's offered before you on the screen from 1 Corinthians 13. Our central text today is from Philippians 1 and 1 Corinthians 13. Philippians 1, 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. 1 Corinthians 13, 4b. Love does not envy or boast. This is the word of the Lord. Now you can sit. Uh, beloved, uh, what Paul says, it, it doesn't take a lot of work to know where he's going from. As, as they say, the theology is on the top of the page. Uh, there are two things that love doesn't do that you might think aren't very related, and yet when you think about them long enough, you discover that they both are associated with what we do when we participate in that natural thing we call comparison, and we all do it. And the first danger when we're getting to comparison, he says, is envying. Now, at risk of insulting your intelligence, what's the definition of envy? I, I have not heard a better definition than what a woman who wrote about the vices, her name is Rebecca Condyke de Young, she put it this way, to, bi to, to envy is to uh, be bitter towards those who have it better. That's envy. It's this feeling you may not even have words for, there's your words. Feeling bitterness towards those who have it better. And you don't even have to go so far, you, don't, you, have, you only have to walk through the Bible to figure out what envy looks like. Let's, let's, let's cue back to the first book of the Bible in chapter 37 of Genesis. You know, there's this guy named Joseph, right? Joseph's got 11 brothers, and Jacob is his dad. And it says that Jacob loved Joseph most because Joseph was the child of Jacob's old age. And, and Joseph's 11 brothers, they don't, they don't really dig that kind of what they perceive to be a preference for their, for their youngest brother. And, and at some point, Joseph doesn't really demonstrate that he's the sharpest tack in the box because he has this dream, and the dream is of him, or of a sheaf of wheat that's surrounded by 11 other sheaves of wheat, and they're all bowing before the center one. And, and, and the brothers look at him and go, really? Like I said, he's not really helping his cause by telling them a dream in which he himself conceives of himself as somehow greater than they. And so what do they do? They conspire. They go after him. And at first they want to kill him, and eventually one of the younger brothers say, no, 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 let's just hurt him. They, they send him into slavery. Why? Because they're bitter that their father's favor rests more upon him. 
they're bitter that he, in their minds at least, has it better. That's envy. Same thing happens in the book of Esther. Mordecai, Esther, Jews who are living in exile in Persia, their cousins, and through a very problematic turn of events, Esther, the Jew, becomes queen over Persia. And Mordecai, he, he kind of rises in knowledge in the royal court, but there's this other Persian high official named Haman, and Haman is always vying for the king's favor. And through a, another problematic turn of events, the king's favor falls on Mordecai the Jew rather than Haman the Persian. And it says of Haman that he went home to his bed covering his head in mourning. Mourning that he didn't have the same favor that this Jewish Mordecai had. Friends, that's envy. He was bitter that in his mind Mordecai had it better. If you want to understand, though, envy in our world, uh, envy is, is nothing more than deeply desiring something you wish you had, and at the same time, secretly or overtly wishing that that person didn't have it. There's the, the proverbial bad breakup. Well, if I can't have her, no one should, right? That's envy. Or maybe you felt it when you got the alumni letter from an earlier day, and, and you see the, the folks whose list of accolades take two pages to condense, and you kind of think about what you may have accomplished in your mind, and you go, ooh, and you're hollow. Envy plays itself everywhere. And it's what kids on Instagram and adults on Facebook both do when they look at the curated selves of their friends and kind of think to themselves, I, I wish I was that. I wish I, I, wish I did that. I, I wish I had that. And if they're honest with themselves, in the back of their minds, they're going, I wish that person didn't have that. It's envy, and it's there, and it lives. What's the other one? There's one danger, that's envy. We'll explain why it's a danger in a minute, but the other danger is really the flip side of envy, and he calls it, or the ESV translated as boasting. Now, I don't know that you and I walk around much talking about boasting. The better translation that I think maybe captures the real truth of what Paul's getting at there is that love doesn't brag. It doesn't mouth off about itself. It doesn't display this sort of inner superiority. Whereas envy wishes they had something that they didn't have and despises anybody that does have it. The braggart, he does have it. And he wants everybody to know it. That's bragging. You see this depicted in all sorts of places. You see it in film. You see it in literature. I think Cobra Kai is back on the market. And, and Johnny Lawrence, right, from The Karate Kid, he was the embodiment of bragging. Oh, he has it all. And you, you peons, you great unwashed, you're nothing. And they've learned to build the whole series around him, bottoming out. You see this in all sorts of places. You see it in sports. You actually marvel at at. The absence of envy. Does anybody remember the name Bernie, uh, Bernie not Bernie Sanders, <laughs> the Detroit Lions quarter, uh, running back? Um, Barry Sanders, thank you. Barry and Bernie are not related. Well, what would Barry Sanders do every time he, he scored a touchdown? He would not spike it. He would just sort of gently walk over to the ref and hand him the ball. 
the absence of being a braggart. Kids, there's probably somebody in your school that everybody knows that they are the hot stuff and they want everybody to know it. Folks who are in workplaces, all we do is just get more refined and more subtle in the way we express that sort of superiority. We want everybody to know that, boy, do we have it. But what is true of braggartness, it it can have these larger-than-life manifestations, but it can also be kind of subtle. The the braggart spirit is, is... maybe just really has this, follows this impulse to want to inject themselves into every single conversation, whether it's for anybody's benefit or not. It's just their way of trying to say, hey, you've heard about me, right? You know, we kind of laugh about it. You know, that's enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? But, but that impulse, as much as we might want to snicker at it, it, it finds its way in. We, whether it's a, a function of pride or a function of insecurity, we just feel this need to always be Putting ourselves out there to make sure that they know, hey, did you know that I know this? Who, who struggles with that? Huh? I don't know. <laughs> envy, envy despises the braggarts. But braggarts, man, they need and love the envious because it helps them feel good. It helps them feel like there's something because there's somebody that wishes that they had what they do. Those are the dangers. Why are they dangerous, though? Let's, let's, let's back up a little bit. Like, why, why are these not just sort of um, characters of fault or faults of, faults of character? Why, why is it something that we're making such a big deal? Or why is it, why is it this big? Let me, let me tell you why. Let me give you a couple of reasons for each one of these, why they're a danger. When it comes to envy, you've wandered into this thing in our circles that we know is idolatry, where you've come to value something so much that you end up being consumed by it, that you long to be recognized in a way that you are so desperate to have what you do not have that it's almost as if your life has no meaning apart from not having that. And then you feel justified in despising somebody else that does have it. Friends, if you are starting to feel that and are gripped by that, you have, you have in so many ways put your own shackles on you and thrown the key in the river. You have, as they like to compare analogy, it's like you've drunk the poison and then wonder why the other person hasn't keeled over. It's idolatry. It is stepping into a world in which you chose it and now it's owned you. That's idolatry and envy is that. That's the first reason it's a danger. The second is that it's a blindness. When you are stuck in envy, you have become blind to all the sorts of things that are in you for which you have reason to be grateful, all the things that are in you for which it gives you a measure of satisfaction and delight. But for you to be envy is to make yourselves entirely blind to that and entirely focused on two things, what you don't have and what you are not. It's refusing to be content. Refusing. Not that you're incapable. You're refusing to be content. Now, okay, probably ought to pause here a little bit and, and, and say, wait a minute. Is there anything wrong with aspiring to something that I do not have? Is there anything wrong with, I don't know, for instance, seeking a promotion in which it offers you different freedoms and flexibility? Is there anything wrong with even maybe hoping for a different paycheck? Of course not. Not on its face. But in the middle of that aspiration, you're always having to ask yourself, for whose sake is this most? 
what does it have most to do in me? It's the author of Ecclesiastes who, who put it rather starkly when he said this in chapter 4, verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity, a striving after the wind. Motives matter. Sometimes what you seek always has to be put in the context of why am I seeking it? And if you are blind to your motivations, you have no idea how much on the edge or the cusp of envy you might be. But the most important reason we consider this a danger is the reason Paul brings it up here in this passage. Love does not envy. It doesn't work that way. It's the opposite of love because it is Envy is, is a reflection of a desperate self-absorption. It is a concern for you that makes you incapable of admiring, affirming, praising somebody that has something that you might properly desire. It's all about you. And it, it, it's just like you cannot go due north and due south at the same time. You cannot love someone and desperately envy them in the same moment. They are totally diametrically opposed. And it leads to a resentment. And that resentment is its own danger. And, and one of the ways in which you really consider the danger is you consider where could envy lead you if you follow it to its logical conclusion. John Owen put it this way. It is like water in a channel. If it once breaks out, it will have its course. Ask envy what it would really have. Murder and destruction is at the end of it. Oh, you may not actually take up a plan in order to harm them physically, but in your heart, you know what it's like to hate. And it's because you envy. That's the reasons we consider envy not just a fault of character, but a danger. Okay, what about the other one? What about bragging? Why should we be worried about that? Why do we not just sort of blow that off or just say, oh, I'll get over that? Because one, Bragging is settling for a pleasure that is really no pleasure and which is a pleasure you can't sustain. If, if you like feeling superior, then what do you need? You need a constant supply of opportunity to feel superior. And you need people to kind of suck up to you and make you feel like you're very important. And it's downstream of this thing that we call pride, which does a great job of seducing you into thinking that that's what you most need. C.S. Lewis said this about pride. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. That's a seduction. That's a self-deception. That's what pride does. That's one reason it's a danger. The other reason, you've signed up for fear if you live by bragging. What do I mean by that? If you put bragging under a microscope, what is it really aspiring to? It's aspiring to admiration. It's aspiring to being seen as significant. And if you work hard at that, if you work hard to be seen in a particular way, then you create this version of yourself that is very public. 
in which everybody that knows you or thinks they knows you thinks, oh, he's so confident. Oh, she's so, she's got so much grit. Look at that resilience. And if you, if you get juiced by that, you, you create this version of yourself, this public version of yourself that everybody is so impressed with you that you feel like you could never admit weakness, that you could never put forth vulnerability, and that you have to maintain that persona in order to live out that interest. And you think, so what, man? Like, there's actually a good payoff there. Why not just live in that way that writes to continually make sure that everybody knows that I'm at the center of attention? Because at the very top of this service, you heard David Foster Wallace. They made a film about that guy's life several years after he took his own life. And in that film, they took a lot of David Foster Wallace's thinking and distilled it the one line that the character that plays him puts it this way. And he said this, the more people think that you're really good, actually, the stronger the fear of being a fraud is. You ever heard of this thing called imposter syndrome? Where this outward-facing expert is haunted by the inwardly shouting skeptic? The more you insist on creating this perception of your wondrousness, the more unwilling you are to ever admit your weakness or your vulnerability. And you might think, well, I'm not really shouting about my impressiveness, but I am concealing my, my weaknesses. And shouting or concealing, it's the same heart. It's the same concern. So it's a recipe for fear as much as it's a seduction by pride. But again, the most important reason why we call bragging a danger is because it's absence of love. Love does not brag. If you want that so much, you can't ever love those who are different from you, who in some ways don't rise to the same level on whatever metric you might want to choose. You always have to be looking down. You always want to make them know that they are not you. And once again, just like envy, it's impossible to love and live in the spirit of bragging at the same time. They don't go together. Envy and bragging are very different expressions. But they're both a danger, and they both put you at the center. T.S. Eliot said this after many years reflecting upon human nature. He said this, half the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. They don't mean to do harm, but the harm does not interest them. Or they don't see it, or they justify it because they're absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. I won't ask for a show of hands for those of you that find yourselves caught in that little loop from time to time. Envy and bragging are both so desperate to think well of themselves. And can you imagine a world, how it would be different if people stopped trying to let everybody know that they mattered or that they were important? Which gets us to the last question then. Fine. If they are a danger, if they are the opposite of love, if it, if, if it is impossible to follow Jesus, to rest in Jesus, if you've fallen into the dangers, these ditches of comparison, how do we escape them? How do we elude them? I need a little help from two people you wouldn't usually put in the same paragraph, 
One is Jesus. You knew that was coming. But the other one is Kurt Vonnegut. There's a little phrase or a little story he tells on himself that kind of circulated around my world of the internet several weeks ago. And I'm just going to, it's a long quote. I'm just going to show you the slide for the last sentence, but I do want to set it up for you here. This is, this is Kurt Vonnegut at the age of 15. When I was 15, I spent a month working on an archaeological dig. I was talking to one of the archaeologists one day during our lunch break, and he asked those kinds of getting to know you questions you ask young people. You play sports? What's your favorite subject? And I told him, no, I don't play sports. I do theater. I'm in choir. I play the violin and piano. I used to take art classes, and he went, wow, that's amazing. And I said, nah, I'm not good at any of them. And he said something then that I will never forget and which absolutely blew my mind because no one had ever said anything like it to me before. He said, I don't think being good at things is the point of doing them. I think you've got all these wonderful experiences with different skills and that all teaches you things and makes you an interesting person no matter how well you do them. And that honestly changed my life because I went from a failure, someone who hadn't been talented enough at anything to excel, to someone who did things because I enjoyed them. I'd been raised in such an achievement-oriented environment, so inundated with the myth of talent, that I thought it was only worth doing things if you could win at them. Here's someone who, who recognized at some point that he had come to embrace an idea that no one had ever taught him, but one that he had come to believe as if it were true, and this was the truth he had come to learn that he thought was true. In order to matter, I must master something. Now look, there's nothing wrong with mastering anything. There's, that's great. That, the, the, learning to be diligent, to do something well, to do right by what you're seeking, nothing, harm, nothing wrong about that. No harm in it. But not to trivialize that story, but there's another character in Sesame Street that I wish I could show you a clip. I don't have time. You remember the guy named Don Music? Neither do I. I had to look up his name. He's the guy that's always sitting behind the piano that's trying to, to learn a new song, and every time he can't get it, he starts to scream at himself until he bangs his head on the piano. He's so desperate to get it right that he begins to hate himself when he can't. Oh, he's trying to think well of himself. And when he can't, he doesn't know what to do. Why? Because he thinks in order to be okay, in order to matter, he has to master something. Kurt Vonnegut, I don't know that you could say that he was envying in that moment. He was certainly longing for something he didn't have. He had that hollow feeling that is not far from envy. And he, and he really admired and esteemed those that he think could properly brag at what they could do. But what Kurt Vonnegut needed was a word from outside of himself. A word that said, there is a way of using your energies in such a way that it has nothing to do with whether you matter or not in them. And when he was to hear that word, it freed him up just to give himself to what that effort deserved. And he even found a little delight in it. Beloved, why do I bring up that story? Because something has to displace in us 
the dangers of comparison. Something has to remove from us that which keeps love out of us. There, we need something that has to usher out this deep desire to do something in order to feel like we matter. What will do that? What can do that? Some people will say, if I just get competent at that, that will make me happy. Friends, do you know how many investment bankers and chefs have taken their own lives when they were at the top of their game? It's not enough. What will displace envy or the tendency to brag? In Psalm 73, in her Old Testament reading, you heard this. But when I thought, let's back it up a little bit. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure at heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their evil. Here's the deal, friends. The one thing that will displace envy or bragging from your soul is worship. It's the only thing that can. Because what envy and bragging are is the worship of what you either don't have or do have. And the only thing that can displace the worship of what you don't have or do have is the worship of him who is greater. And in the gospel, we have that word from outside. The gospel, to borrow the line from Eliot, is here to give you another reason for why you might think well of yourself. And it has nothing to do. It is tied to nothing about what you've accomplished. Oh, there's great joy in that, and there's satisfaction in that, but there's not the ultimate ballast of your soul in that. No, the gospel comes along and says, here's why you might think well of yourself, because of what I have done well on your behalf. To forgive you, to adopt you, to set aside for you an inheritance that is without equal, and then to free you, to free you to stop thinking about yourself so much and to love others that need somebody to think about them. This is the gospel. It will displace those things. So what's the application of the passage? Here's the application. You might think, really, that's it? Worship the Lord. It's why we started our worship service like this. If you don't know what that means by worship, it's more than just attending. It's more than just reading. It's more than just nodding your head. It's stretch out with your feelings, Luke. You know what worship is because all of those counterfeit forms of it that David Foster Wallace began, mentioned at the beginning of our worship service. We have to discover why God is worthy of our attention, why he's worthy of our praise, why he's worthy of our tears. Because there will be a day when you will hear in your head which one of these is not like the other, which one of these just doesn't belong. And you will either feel empty at hearing that whispered in your head or you will feel too impressed with yourself. And what you and I have to do in moments like that is to remind ourselves through our words, through our prayers, through our stillness, through our gathering is, He is greater. He is enough. That what I most need, I've been given by Him. And what I already have, I have reason for gratitude. And therefore, whatever I might aspire to, whether I get there or not, He's still good. And I am His. And He is mine. Let's pray.
Father, we praise you that you might enter into us and move in us to believe something that we cannot see, but which we are strangely persuaded of. Father, we ask that you might help us to hope in what is good and what is greater than anything that we might have or not have. And in that freedom to believe that, to then be of great help and hope to others. And that's why I think your son taught us to pray. In that prayer, he taught us to pray when he said, join me, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Join me in the benediction, please. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Please exit quickly and greet yourselves outside.